0: Hello and welcome to Brain Stories. I'm Selina Ray, and I'm here today with my co-host Caswell Barry.
1: On Brain Stories, we aim to provide a behind-the-scenes profile of the latest and greatest work in neuroscience, highlighting the stories and the scientists who are making this field tick.
0: We don't just ask about the science, we ask how the scientists got to where they are today and where they think their field is going in the future.
1: Today, we're joined by uh, Dr. Andrew McCaskill. Andrew is a Welcome Trust Sir Henry Dale Fellow interested in the hippocampus and its role in value-based decision-making. Uh, he's previously worked on the stratum as a Henry Wellcome postdoctoral fellow when he was at New York University, and he did his PhD with Joe Kittler at UCL before that, he was an undergrad at Cambridge University. Andrew, welcome to Brain Stories.
2: Thanks very much for having me. It's very nice to be here.
1: Uh, so, Andrew, can you uh, tell us a bit about who you are and what your what your research is about?
2: Yeah, so I guess um, I am a Glaswegian neuroscientist, um, and I guess we I've recently in the last few years set up my own lab. Really interested in basically the the, the mechanisms of how we learn things. And how we use that, that that learning and the memories of that learning to kind of guide guide decisions uh, to get what, what we need and what we want. Um, and I'm particularly interested, I guess, in um firstly, how that these kind of processes can go wrong in in disease. And uh, there's a lot of evidence that um increasingly that these are the kind of processes that go wrong in almost al- almost all mental health disorders, for example, um, such as anxiety, depression, these these kind of things. Um but then also I'm interested really in the mechanistic detail. And as Kazlok kind of I mentioned at the start, I'm originally a biochemist. And so I'm very much interested both at how the learning actually happens in, in, in the kind of full animal, but also really like the molecular and cellular processes for like how how is this actually being done by the brain? And with the hope is that we can use that information to kind of get at really what's going wrong when it goes wrong in, in disease.
1: And so when you when you say the brain, are you interested in specific regions? What are the, you know. For the sorts of tasks you're interested in, animals learning things, what are the what are the relevant brain regions and, and why do you think those are so interesting?
2: I guess really the fundamental thing that, that I'm really fascinated by is the fact that we are really, really good at understanding relatively simple learning processes. Right, so everyone has this idea of like Pavlov's dog, right? We've probably most people have heard about this, right? If you should ring a bell and then give a dog a bone, it will it will um, eventually learn. That the bell predicts the bone, and will start to salivate to the bell before you even give it the bone, right? This kind of classic, classic learning. Um, and so, after all that discussion, I'm actually not particularly interested in that kind of learning, though, right? And because we know a lot about it, what I'm actually interested in is when this kind of learning becomes a bit more complicated. Okay. And so, for example, um, when what happens if the bell suddenly means something else, and you have to update your learning, right, about 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 that? So, for example, the bell suddenly means a cat instead, right? That, that could that you, you have to change your entire learning process. Um, and so for these kind of things, that, um, uh, th- I'm, the brain regions that are involved in that are kind of more complicated. And so there, there are regions such as the hippocampus, um, which Caswell mentioned before, um, the prefrontal cortex, Um, and how they interact with the kind of classic learning circuitry that's thought to involve Pavlovian learning such as the the basal ganglia, such as the stratum and and the ventral tegmental area. Um, And so what I find really fascinating is that all of these kind of high order places like the hippocampus and prefrontal cortex are actually mainly thought to be involved in kind of spatial type type tasks. um, whereas what we're really interested in is how they're actually utilized to learn and to learn flexibly. And what I mean by flexibly is that ability to kind of update what you've learned and understand that you need to constantly be updating your your, your strategies and of what you're learning about and how you're using it uh, to to kind of optimally behave, I guess. So as a result of that, my lab is kind of focused on um, mainly the hippocampal circuit and how it interacts with the kind of classical learning circuitry in, in the striatum and the ventral tegmental area.
0: And so I assume that you are testing this in kind of rodent models as your experimental system. Would that be correct?
2: We are, yes, yes. So again, yeah, but my, my massive focus is because I'm a biochemist is because I really want to understand the cells and the molecules underlying this. But as a kind of first step, we obviously need to be able to explore the behaviour itself. And so we need to have this kind of halfway house to where we're a system where we can actually get animals to do these kind of complicated type behaviors. And they're kind of not trivial, right? Even uh, even like Google's fancy AI that can beat people at, at chess really struggles with these kind of co- cognitive, um, cognitive flexibility type tasks. Um, and so my, what nicest thing is that mice can do these kind of tasks, but also we can use mice to really image in real time and record in real time from individual neurons in these brain regions uh, while they're doing the task. We can use lots of fancy. Um, of manipulations such as things like optogenetics, um, chemogenetics um, and and other kind of tools to, to inactivate or activate in particular patterns the different neurons to look at the causality of their activity. And then also something that my lab is very much focused on is we can actually use similar tools to look at how the different brain regions actually connect with each other and what information they're actually sending to each other that allows them to together as a kind of whole support these kind of behaviors. And so yeah, it's that balance between being able to look at cells and um, but also being able to look at those cells in an animal that's actually doing a task that's that's fundamentally complicated and has direct relevance to, to you kind know, of disease and, and mental health.
0: It's fascinating. So could you give us an example um you know if I'm trying to visualize this, what is what sort of tasks do you ask these animals to do to kind of test this adaptive learning?
2: Yeah, yeah. So there's multiple ones, I guess, um, but the the simplest one, I guess, is is just what's called um, probabilistic reversal learning, right? And this is um, it sounds like an awful name, right? It sounds so matty and it's like everyone's like, oh no. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Uh, so it's not that bad. Don't worry. Um, essentially, it's the idea. It's basically slot machines, right? And so we all have this idea. If you go into like Las Vegas and you have a big row of of slot machines, there's like a hundred of them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the game there is to try and work out which one is going to is going to pay you out with the highest likelihood okay and you know most people won't go in there and just randomly pull levers right they'll they'll even if you know that it's a lost cause you're probably going to try and strategize about which one's going to win and which one's losing at at a particular rate okay (laughs) and so what the key with these kind of bandit tasks or, or these kind of uh, reversal learning tasks is that they're constantly changing to avoid you being able to work out, right? It would not be a very good casino if one machine was the one that paid you out 70% of the time always, right? And it just stayed like that. Then everyone would know and it would they would lose money. Okay, so, th- so the way you learn this is to, um, you have to quickly work out which one's the best, but then constantly be looking out for it not being the best anymore, and looking for for other options to, to try. So you could imagine that uh, kind of classic learning, like Pavlov's dog, would be the situation where only one of the slot machines was the best one. Right? You'd, you'd very nicely learn, right? If I press the lever of this particular machine, it will um, it will reward me, and I can start to salivate at the prospect of money <laughs> um, uh, coming out the machine uh, every time I press the lever. Right, but what I'm kind of interested in this kind of flexible behaviour is the ability to realise that at this particular time, this machine is the one that's given out uh, the right, um, the the best money. But also, when it stops being it, the ability to switch my behaviour to start pressing another lever that I've now inferred as the one that's the, that's the best lever.
1: So as you're describing this, it sounds like you're sitting at a really interesting intersection. Because on one hand, you were saying how you're interested in sort of effectively the biochemistry of learning, sort of what's happening at the level of individual neurons. On another level, you're sort of dealing with the whole animal. So you're looking at sort of networks and what's happening, you know, a population level of neurons. But actually, it sounds like what you're describing is sort of quite highly theory-driven as well. Um, So there are, you know, it sounds, this sort of task is exactly the sort of thing that can be described quite simply with theory. And you seem to be sat at the sort of the, the intersection of those things, which sounds very exciting. I mean, is that a... Would you say that's a fair assessment of the situation?
2: Yeah, well, that's really nice. That's ex- that is exactly what we're aiming for, yeah. So I obviously find that very exciting, Caswell. So I'm, I'm, I'm pleased that you, you do as well. That's nice. Um, yeah, so a lot of... Uh, basically, our aim is... And I think what may be an issue with what we've been struggling with in the past is that we've essentially been focusing on recording from neurons and doing kind of manipulations in tasks that are really historically good for probing that region of the brain. In a mouse, for example, say. And and so, what we run the risk of there then is like potentially inferring the function of that that neuron or that brain region solely in terms of the task that that we're doing. And so, what we really, really want to get at is well, if we do a task that we can kind of mathematically understand. And okay, I know that's super boring, but like, it's actually really exciting for me, at least. It's so like, the, the nice thing about these bandit tasks is you can actually create a computational model that um, will solve this task. And you can match how the, the model behaves to match the behavior of the mouse within the trial. And what that means is, instead of being like, this neuron fires when the mouse presses the, the right lever that was high and then gets a reward, you can be like this neuron fires when the mouse thinks that there's like a 67% chance that the reward's going to be uh, the lever is going to be rewarded, whereas this lever fires when it's pretty sure that the other lever is going to be rewarded, but it's just testing out the the wrong lever just in case something's changed. Right? And so with this kind of like framework, it actually, although it sounds ridiculous to try and go from cells through theory to full behavior. I think the adding in the theory actually provides that link because it provides a kind of hypothesis for what we think the the individual elements of the circuit, which in our case is the cells, should be doing in order to to carry out the task. And so, it actually, gives us what what we're looking for. Rather than experimentally look, looking at things that are experimentally defined, we look at things that are actually defined by the calculation the mouse is having to do in, in in real
1: time. So it also, I guess. To develop what I said before, as well, it sounds essentially what you're describing is a form of reinforcement learning, which I guess is more commonly associated exactly with the things like you said before, like deep mind, deep mind agents that have been trained to like beat each other at chess or something like that. Um, is that true? Am I right in saying that essentially what you're looking at is sort of a biological, a simple biological analog of reinforcement learning? And do you think there are actually points of contact between sort of what essentially has become? A successful theory in the machine learning world and how the brain solves these problems.
2: Yeah, and so that's, I think that's something that's super fascinating, right? And so I need to be wary of my own knowledge boundaries, right? So I'm, I'm obviously somebody who's, who's very much interested in the biology of it. And so I don't want to, you know, massively offend people who know much more than I do in, in the reinforcement learning field. But I guess the way we look at it, is at least at the, the, kind of, the original kind of RL reinforcement learning type, type theories are that a lot of people use, especially in the rodent fields, are essentially going back to what I was talking about, kind of Pavlov's dog, right? And so it's like they are really, really good at learning one thing really, really well with a lot of training, and actually struggle in a number of ways to, to be flexible and to update, right? Bandit tasks are potentially not the best example for, for that. But if you make it slightly more complicated or make it slightly more need for, for kind of changes in in, in your behavior, um, Classic RL um, does not actually work that well. Right? And that's one of the stumbling blocks. And a lot of, a lot of research, I think, in, in, in the field is looking at how you can make uh, reinforcement learning algorithms and, and AI much better at being as flexible as we know we are, and also, as I'm showing with our behavior, that mice really are as well. And so, again, I think it's a two-way street. right? We're very much focused in this kind of reinforcement learning framework. But also, we're talking a lot to people who are actually at the forefront of these kind of um, algorithms to try and work out, well, we know these don't work. So what 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 does work? And what does fit our behavior better? And then it's a two-way street, right? They can then be like, oh, cool. If animals, if it looks like animals actually use this, then this is probably quite a good way to do it, right? And we can be like, oh, thanks, cool. You've helped describe our behavior. <laughs> Let's go and look for neurons and see if they do this. Uh, if they encode these these variables that, that, that you're finding.
1: Are, are the fields sufficiently close that you could talk with someone who's like a straight-up machine learning RL person? Is there is there a common language? Can you actually, do we live the dream where the, the two worlds interact and sort of, you know, we suggest, they suggest experiments, we can see those sort of things in the neural data, or are we just too far apart?
2: Yeah, well, I've, I'm definitely, I would love to be, and I basically spend a lot of my time trying to understand other clever people's stuff right and I think um I don't know I think I I think that's definitely something that I like to do though so um constantly outside your comfort zone feeling like a bit of an idiot but it's kind of interesting because you're always learning stuff but I think the uh um it's definitely enough that there is starting to be a lot of interaction um and yes I've noticed even like whereas maybe five years ago there was essentially none Um, or maybe one or two labs really really kind of looking at it. Now it's become much, much more common. And so I think it's definitely interesting for the future that we're really going to see a a kind of like expansion of, of this kind of stuff, especially with more people becoming more computer literate, I think. I think maybe also bizarrely, although for us the pandemic's been kind of really bad, what it has done for us is allowed us to take some time to sit back and really get on top of the theory. And so we've been doing a lot of kind of <laughs> linear algebra <laughs> <laughs> tragedy. Is that a
1: good thing or a bad
2: thing? <laughs> yeah, like you know, I I remember when I was young doing maths, right? And I do not remember doing linear algebra at all. I remember having to do calculus all the time, and I don't, I don't. Maybe I was just so abhorred by it that I just uh, I just blocked it out. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, it's really helpful though. I would recommend if anyone's listening who's thinking about doing maths, they should definitely do linear algebra. It's amazing (laughs) now that I remember what it is.
0: There we go, a recommendation for us all going forward. (laughs)
2: <laughs> Math is helpful.
0: So maybe I could ask Amar a general question, maybe a slightly naive question, because this is quite different to my own work. But right at the very beginning, one of the things that you mentioned that I picked up on was the way we adapt um, our learning to get what we need and what we want. Mm. And I think that's quite an interesting distinction. Is the process the same? Because obviously in this slot machine analogy. I might want more money but I don't necessarily need it in the same way that I need food to survive. Are these processes the same or are there kind of subtle distinctions between how we learn those things?
2: Yeah, no, so that, you know, that is a great question because um it's really fascinating, right? Because you'd and it kind of gets at that idea of instead of the what the neurons are doing be defined by the task, looking at like well how can you define the actual thing that needs to be done, right? And so it can like, I I didn't plan this, did I? This is you actually asked that question, right? So you know we actually are looking at <laughs> <laughs> we actually are looking at the exact same problem, um, but from a from a hunger perspective, right? Mm. And so you'd imagine that if you yeah exactly if you're playing slot machines, you're just you know playing around getting money, right? Mice they do it they do it to get um, sugary water because sugary water is, is mice tend not to like playing for money. They don't really like it very much. Um, and so not
0: big fans of shopping.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. They don't know how to work. They don't know how to work eBay. right?
1: Ch- Chocolate money. That's what you need.
2: <laughs> yeah. So we're actually looking at it in terms of hunger, because actually, if you think about it in a kind of abstract way, actually, all it is, is the same problem, right? It's being able to tell that the correct response right now, in terms of like what I should do is dependent on whether I'm hungry or whether I'm not hungry. Okay, and that's kind of the equivalent of I should press this bandit task now because it is currently the one that's good, versus I should um, press this bandit. This uh, it's not, I keep calling them bandit tasks, Sorry, They're, um, That's the jargon. Um, they are slot machines, right? We should press. I should press this slot machine if, um, they, if the if because this one is high now, and it, you can kind of abstract it into the same the same problem. Okay. And so what uh, a uh, graduate student in my lab has been doing is, is, is asking that exact question. How does the brain know that it's good to go and press a lever for some food when you're hungry, but that it's better to do something else if you're not hungry? Yeah. And what's really interesting is we've been, um, we've actually found it's the same circuits that, 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 that do both things, right? And so you have this idea where you have, a, instead of it being the hunger circuit, which would, if we'd only done the hunger stuff, we'd have been tempted to call it. It's now actually just the, the, I guess, the context circuit, or the, you know, the ability to to know that a particular time doing the same thing is different from 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 uh, from another time.
1: I think this is so. What you said there is so interesting. As you were talking and you mentioned the hippocampus, which I'm obviously familiar with, I was just so struck by how the interpretation of the same brain region can be so different from different perspectives based on what task you're doing and i mean you said it exactly there in the context of your own lab whether you do a hunger task or a value task or a war task um it seems that's one of i don't know i feel like that's one of our big problems in neuroscience right is that we've as neuroscientists we've expanded and we've covered pretty much all areas of the brain but different people just working on the same bit just see it as a different thing i guess it's like that old or is it the story of the blind people feeling different bits of the elephant and one of them saying, you know, it's a snake or it's has kind got... Of, it's essentially where we are the same. We're just stumbling around in the dark at the moment trying to understand different sections of the brain. That's unduly negative. I'm not sure why I did that, but I was just struck by exactly that as you were speaking.
2: Yeah, no, and but I think that's where... I think that's kind of exciting though, right? Because it's not as if the, the blind man feeling the elephant's tusk was not correct in his description, right? And so we're we're literally we have, we have this amazing situation now where like although so the, the the kind of unsaid thing right is I'm the awful person who studies the hippocampus but doesn't study space right which is the what the hippocampus is really famous for for encoding the outcast. right and so yeah the outcast <laughs> this, and this is exactly why everybody thinks I'm an idiot right and so I'm I'm you know I'm fine with that you know it's okay <laughs> um, but uh, so the. The fact that people have studied space, the, the, actually the only reason my lab exists and can exist is because there's such a beautiful set of data and understanding of how it works in the spatial context or a spatial task. And so we are, what we were doing is we're actually applying all that knowledge to these other kind of tasks. right? And so we're just generalizing what's already known. Um, and I think, I think I hope that's helpful. helpful for the field, and I, th- I think I think it is. But I think it's just it, we would not be in that position if if all this work hadn't been done before. And so, although there was a kind of an, it is negative that we are all kind of stumbling around in the dark, I think it is each it, we will eventually join it all together, and that's going to be very very exciting.
1: And I think actually the other thing that strikes me is how. Uh, it's rare for for me, a spatial hippocampologist, to hear your point of view because we're not very good at talking to people outside of our immediate spheres. And even even an exercise like this is quite useful. Hearing a different take on a brain region that you think you're familiar with, and that I guess that problem is maybe it's not a problem. It's just something we need to be sort of cognizant of and sort of you know get out of our comfort zones, like you said, and talk to some other people.
2: Exactly. Yeah. So I've I've increasingly been giving these like excruciating talks where i'm trying to trying to talk about something that i'm completely outside my comfort zone with but like you know the 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 acute the acute awfulness is amazing in hindsight because it exposes you to ideas and other people to use ideas and and you'll get towards the, the the end goal i guess right which is actually to understand i really do think the the computational side of things is going to be huge because it again, if, across tasks, but the same calculations is, is, how, is how it's going to be, how we're going to work out what's actually going on, I think.
0: So I think that segues quite nicely into what the kind of other half of this podcast is about, which is to find a little bit more about you and how you ended up working in this, this area. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about how your your journey kind of started out and how you ended up doing what you Did do Did you now. spend a lot of time in slot machines?
2: <laughs> <laughs> is it not that everyone's, is everyone, everyone in science is meant to study the thing that they're absolutely awful at, right? <laughs> and so... Am I really bad at gambling? Maybe I am. Who knows? Terrible. I also, when I was in America, I studied addiction. So hmm, hopefully not. <laughs> Maybe I'm bad at addiction, which means I'm fine. Who knows? Anyway, um, yeah. So I guess yeah. So I I don't know. I've had this like really weird trajectory. Well, I guess everyone has a really weird trajectory. That must be the thing that everyone on your show will say, right? I've had this really unique. Um...
0: But that's good. We want to hear that kind of diversity of journey. So the weirder, the better.
2: Yes, yeah, so I went to university convinced I was going to study chemistry. Um. Uh. And I think to be honest, it was mainly because at my school there was the 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 good teacher in the school was the chemistry teacher, right? And so it's like amazing how that kind of rubs off me. But within about three or four lectures, I realized that that was way out of my league. And so I decided to um, switch to biochemistry instead, which was which was actually much more interesting. Um but as part of my degree, I, I actually focused on plant sciences. And so I was um, doing a lot of like Arabidopsis. And um, kind of the composition of organelles and, and membranes, and um, I did that for my um, for for a lot of my stuff. Um, and so I got really into kind of molecular makeup of and trafficking and how how um, the the cell forms essentially and how it functions at, at the kind of very molecular level. Um, I then I had a little segue in my last year where I happened to do kind of this trafficking stuff, but in term but just happened to be in the neuroscience model. Um, uh, with I was working with Rick Livesey at the time, who I think is so now just moved to UCL, I think, right? But um, And yeah, and so that, literally, my introduction to neuroscience was because I wanted to study something else, and the, the model system that I happened to be studying it in was a neuron. <laughs> I just, <laughs> I found it super fascinating, right? It's like, it's the complexity of the nervous system is just amazing. And so that basically shot me off in this random direction. And it's basically been an uphill like movement ever since. So I w- then I went to UCL to do a PhD, but again, I did it in trafficking of mitochondria. And so mitochondria are like the batteries of the cell. And the reason that I wanted to do it in neurons is because obviously neurons have this beautiful architecture, right? And so you have these huge dendrites that span, and axons that can span meters and meters in humans. And you need to kind of sh- push these little batteries all around this complex architecture, right? So it's in a neuron, this is a super fascinating problem.
1: Just to clarify, when you say trafficking, you mean um, you don't mean sort of international drugs trade. You mean moving things around inside cells. I I do.
2: Yes. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So they, they, basically, these these are little like little buses, and they have little roads that are made up of microtubules, and they use little motor proteins to kind of one make push them around and pull them around the the entire architecture of the neuron. And so my entire PhD was basically spent looking down a microscope at these like beautiful mitochondria moving through the dendrites of neurons. Um, and so then when, it sounds silly, but like, literally, I just went with whatever happened to be interested in at the time. So then I went for my postdoc, I then was like, oh, wow, neurons are really pretty, aren't they? And they're really big. And I wonder if like st- synapses at one part of the neurons might be different from synapses at the other parts of the neurons. And so I got really into kind of dendritic, dendritic integration, essentially. And so my postdoc, I went to New York to, to kind of build and use a, a fancy microscope that would allow me to look at the properties of different connections along um, the, the, the kind of big, complicated architecture of the of the neurons. Um, yeah. And then it, again, one step up, it was like, well, then I'm interested in neurons and their connections are totally different, I found across the, the length. And so I wonder what that does to behavior. <laughs> and then
0: <laughs> to a different scale each time. Yeah. We've gone. And so
2: I'm I, I'm pretty sure my next grant's going to be in humans or something. Right. And that's the only way that's the, that's the trajectory that, <laughs> that it's going to yeah, so that, that it's really it's basically because I've had kind of quite a lot of experience at all of these different levels is kind of where my interests come in, right? It's like I, I really actually am interested in the, the trafficking, the molecular oriented positioning of 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 molecules in synapses that form the circuits that are going to carry out these complicated calculations during behavior, and I, and I think what's really fascinating about that is that if you think about what goes wrong in disease. And almost all diseases, right? It's almost always at the level of molecules, genes, you know, synaptopathies, which just means stuff going wrong at synapses. synapses. <laughs> um, and, and so I think being able to have that understanding of the synaptic connections, uh, as well as the kind of overarching uh, goal, I think is really cool. And so that's kind of, that's basically where I came from. So yeah, all the way from chemistry to, uh, I guess what, computational systems neuroscience.
1: That is very diverse. I've got to say I know you were, I know you were conjecturing that everyone has a sort of a unique and interesting story but that that is a, a quite an interestingly diverse story that you've got to right there. Do you think that is that would you say the, the breadth of experience trades off against sort of the the ability to sort of specialize I mean some people might just work on the same you know the same model, the same brain region 15, 20 years whereas you've sort of hopped around a bit yeah do you you feel you're disadvantaged or do you think that actually has been a positive benefit
2: yeah no so that's i've obviously i worry about that a lot actually right because i'm constantly the idiot in the room who's just entered the field right and so um i think i i feel like now i think maybe i'm at a stage where i feel that i can answer the questions i want to answer and so i think if anything i'll probably start going back towards more molecular stuff because you know, kind of, what do you call it square the circle, round this? Anyway, you know, you know what I mean. Going back and starting to go into more depth of the same things. Um, but yeah, definitely over the course of, especially in my postdoc and starting the lab, I kind of moved from essentially cell culture to in vivo for the transition, and then from my post from my postdoc to my my running my own lab, I, I literally switched from basal ganglia and essentially Pavlovian learning to. Hippocampus and all this complicated adaptive, flexible behavior and updating and all this kind of stuff. And so I'm, I'm, kind of learning. I'm learning as the guys in my lab are learning, right? And I think that I, I personally, that's what I find. Uh, that's what I enjoy, right? But um, it definitely comes with a, a big pinch of kind of imposter syndrome constantly, right?
1: That's pretty cool. I think that's. I think that's. It's a. It's a. It's a way to stay really interested and engaged in things. I, I think it's. I imagine imagine you're not in danger of feeling overly jaded by uh, like what you're doing day to day it sounds quite an exciting mix of different things
2: yeah instead of feeling overly jaded i feel that i might just be doing something that's completely wrong <laughs>
0: <laughs> but i think it's good it's a way to have people see old problems with fresh eyes in a way i mean i think one of the biggest risks sometimes in science is that things get so dogmatic and you know there are ways and concepts of thinking that. It's really difficult to challenge when you're kind of in that field for a long time, and coming in with a different skill set, different range of expertise just lets you see things slightly differently. So I think it's it's probably quite powerful.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. It should be encouraged. Hopefully, we shall we shall see
2: in a few years, I guess. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and was it straight
1: through for you? I, I, I gather. I, I know, in fact, that you've done other things as well as being a scientist.
2: I had a brief a brief. Uh, time outside science in between it wasn't really outside science though right because it was directly after my um, undergraduate degree i was in that kind of awful you know what you're like when you're 21 you're like i don't know what i want to do i really don't And i had no idea and i was like do i want to do science i don't know it might be cooler to be in a band and so um uh over the course when i was an undergrad um i was in a band and we were, we were kind of playing lots of gigs and stuff um and i basically after undergrads, decided that I wanted to do music um, for a bit, very, very briefly, like matters of Months. I got a, um, a position at EMI, uh, which is like one of the major labels. Um, and uh, I, I just failed miserably at it. <laughs> <laughs> it was one of those, whole, you know, when you, when, like, I was basically had this dream, I was like, I'm going to join I'm gonna be an AR person for a record label. That is gonna be that's like takes every single box for me. And then I went in and it was like, well, it's really every job is the same, right? Especially when you're at a massive major label. It's like I was just filling in Excel spreadsheets with numbers and arranging meetings and you know, I think a lot of my time was spent putting uh deciding who to send record samples to and posting them. <laughs> <laughs> And It was just that, yeah. So yeah, so I, I had a, I had a, a kind of brief sojourn with 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 the music industry. But then after that, I decided to do a PhD at UCL. But cynically, kept on being quite serious with the band I was in at the time, um, to the extent that I have this very specific memory of my boss during my PhD, because there was actually another person in his lab at the same time that had that was also super into music and was. Kind of teetering on the edge of, of switching to music, and um, the uh, my my boss sat us both down and had a, a proper chat with us. And he was like, "You must decide right now. You can either you know start applying yourselves, and uh, you know then you might have a chance to do something decent with your scientific career, or you can just." I was about to swear there, but I just I remember that I'm not allowed to. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and so both of us, both of us got schooled by our boss at the time, and both of us decided to stick with science. and Both of us now have our own lab, so it was obviously good. It was obviously good advice at the time. So,
0: I mean, it's pretty amazing because I think music and science have got to be two of the most difficult career trajectories to try and pursue. So, to know, have exactly. a crack at both, I think deserves a lot of credit, and to be very successful in the one that you chose.
2: Well, so the, the tragedy of the music thing was I was so into music and I thought I was going to do all that stuff. But then really actually what happened was my, my brother, you know, just happened to be super successful at music a few years after I, uh, I, <laughs> I failed miserably. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So my brother has like played the main stage of, or the no, the pyramid stage of Glastonbury and all he's played on Jules Holland and all this kind of stuff. Oh, wow. So, you know, he he is he's much better much better than i was it's very sad
1: do you do you think you'll be one of these you come across these sort of great neuroscientists who like it turns out have a totally extra sort of uh, string to their bow and like they're an artist or whatever do you do you think that might do you think that's the the route this is going to take you'll be like collecting your nobel prize and then you'll play your guitar afterwards <laughs> i don't know <laughs> I have like night- nightmare
2: visions of like the dad rock band I'm going to be in when I'm like fifty, you know. Like, I'll have like a big bald patch on top of my head <laughs> and long hair, right down the side, and I'll play Pink Floyd covers. That's more. That's more what it's going to be like, right? That's not going to be. Uh... <laughs> I think. I think that should probably should be avoided,
1: right?
0: Well, we had him here before he was famous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> so, so um, Andrew, uh, what would you say? Um, is the sort of the big question in your field, or what's the future? What do you expect to happen in the, the next 10 years in terms of things being solved, or technologies coming to bear that can make a big difference?
2: Well, yeah, it's. I guess we kind of t- touched on it already, right? But I think I really am very excited at the, at the kind of the linking between all the kind of fantastic computational modeling and and, and real kind of cellular and systems neuroscience. And it's really is, it's, it's, it's linking up those, um, those blind men trying to work out what the elephant is, right? and obviously, like the main goal is to um, try and work out what the brain is, right? But I think for me personally, the next, the, the big question that I really think is important for us to focus on is, is how understanding the brain to an extent that we can actually understand what is going wrong in disease, right? and I think a lot of our efforts are. We just simply don't know enough about how the brain works in order to understand what's going wrong, in my in my opinion. And so I think it's I would really like to get to the stage where instead of being like this model of, of um, depression doesn't press the lever as much, to being like this model of depression has a has a has a problem with this synaptic connection, and that results in it being unable to encode value properly. All right, and I think once we get to those kind of specific quantitative um, uh like understanding of, of these problems we can then target our interventions much more effectively i think i think there was an amazing quote by um by i think it was uh david anderson who's like a very famous californian uh, neuroscientist and he was like the, the current stage we're at now with with kind of uh interventions with for for neuroscience is that when your car runs out of oil what you do is you just pour all the oil over all the the whole car and hope that some of it goes in in the right place. And obviously when you do that some of it's going to go in the wrong place and hurt the card just as just as much as not having oil in it did, right? And so what we're trying to understand is understand like how where where does the oil have to go, right? Because then we can just put it straight in and we'll fix the we'll fix it much better. And so I think that's really where I think and I really think this kind of link between computation and the kind of wet lab cellular understanding is is going to provide that that kind of link.
1: That's a great analogy. Yeah, interesting. I really like that. So, the final question we ask everybody, um, and I'm about to ask you, too, is what is your favourite or maybe most unusual fact about the brain? Yeah,
2: so my fa- it's, it's maybe not as, as kind of quirky unusual, but my my favourite fact about the brain, definitely, is this idea that our, we are getting really good at understanding like, how to learn things, like, how the brain might learn things, how we carry out all these complicated computations, especially with all these models we've been talking about so far. But what I find fascinating right, is that because I come from this molecular synaptic background, what we currently envisage the brain being is lots of neurons that are connected to each other to perform a calculation. Okay. But we also know that every single neuron actually has about 10,000, sometimes more, different synaptic connections on it. Right. And so this is to the extent that an individual neuron, in terms of computational power, can probably just by itself perform almost every algorithm that we can think of and currently model an entire brain region doing. And so I just I just find that absolutely fascinating, right? So like at we our brains are insane. They're they're just so so complex and have so much computational power and our amazing models that can do so many things are actually an order of magnitudes simpler at at, at the very best approximation um, to to what's actually going on. And so I think just imagine the mammoth things that can happen when you have this enormous increase in in, in these kind of processes. And so synapses, remember about synapses and how fascinating and wonderful they actually are.
1: What a great way to end.
0: Thank you so much for joining us for that fascinating discussion.
2: (laughs) It a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me.
1: We'd like to thank Matt Wakelin. Maya Sapir, Trevor Smart, for their roles in taking Brain Stories from an idea to a fully fledged podcast. Susie McCarthy for editing and mixing. Follow us on Twitter at uclbrainstories for updates and information about forthcoming episodes.